Welcome, everyone, to episode 217 of Some Like It, Scott. I'm your host, Scott Shelton, and on this week's episode, we have our annual Christmas double feature discussing two very cinematic movies, Glass Onion, the Netflix mystery comedy sequel from the mind of Ryan Johnson, which could only be briefly caught in theaters in spite of many people wanting to, and, of course, Babylon, Damien Chazelle's epic period drama set in the 1920s and 1930s of Hollywood, which could readily be viewed in the theater in spite of, apparently, no one wanting to see it. So there you some nice juxtaposition. We'll be getting into both of those movies later on in the podcast. However, with me, as always, I have my co-host, Scott Harvey. Scott, Merry Christmas. Happy Holidays. How are you doing during this festive period? I'm good, Scott. Uh, thank you. Merry Christmas. We're recording this on Boxing Day, so we just uh, had Christmas yesterday. Um, I had a good day. I hope you did as well. We got to uh, see each other in Chattanooga for a little bit um, last weekend, so always enjoy that and always enjoy getting ready to do our uh, our Christmas <clears throat> double episode. Um, yep. I guess uh, I'm spoiled on this from the year that we had Little Women and Uncut Gems. Um, I'm not sure we'll ever get one better than that i'm trying to remember i looked at earlier today we did licorice pizza we did licorice pizza and was it the matrix resurrections as yes well? that's exactly what that's 100 okay. yeah, that was that was that's a good double feature i mean that was my favorite yeah. movie of the year uh and then sure. you know i did like the matrix resurrections as well so i mean the um, conversation about the matrix resurrection it was a great one yeah no doubt but Remains to be seen uh, how how things will pan out today. Not going to show our hands too early here in the sure. podcast, but um, yeah, it's always good to have I mean, multiple big movies to talk about, and we're only a couple of weeks away now from our final lists. So. To do a full review of the movies we have covered in our various Christmas double features, the first year is kind of weird because we were doing we were doing double movies on every episode, but yeah, yeah. I believe technically we were like Roma and. It might have been Mary Queen of Scots might have been our other okay, one. That sounds right. Yeah. Or no, or the mule. It was one of those. It was one of those. Oh, and then yeah, yeah. 2020 was Wonder Woman 1984 partnered with Soul, Soul. Yeah. <laughs> which what what a double feature <laughs> right there. Yeah, because that was the big thing in COVID year. They're going to put out these two big movies on the same same yeah. day on Christmas. So, and I watched yeah, them I, on the I, same day, if I remember correctly. I watched Wonder Woman 1984 on Christmas, and it was not one of the better Christmases that I've had. I don't know <laughs> if there's any correlation between the two things, but yes, there probably was. But um, I had a good Christmas this year. Um, the sure. I, And actually, part of it was watching Glass Onion for the second time with my family. Uh, that was part of my Christmas. Whether it was part of, whether it was the good part or not, I guess you'll find out here in just a few minutes. Yeah, my Christmas um, day was spent watching the other movie we'll be talking about later on today. Uh, when I messaged, I wasn't 100% sure that I was going to watch it on watch it yesterday. This kind of came together sort of behind the scenes, I guess, kind of last minute because I, it wasn't clear whether either of us were going to see Babylon even before we'd record the podcast yeah. today. Ended up, we both did. You saw it very early, like the first day it was out, like the 23rd, right? Mm -hmm. Or 22nd. Thursday, yeah. Yeah, mm -hmm. the 22nd. And then I was going to see it next week and then ended up seeing it yesterday with my mom. And she's like, yeah, we'll go watch it. And I'm, I texted you and you were like, oh, boy. <laughs> oh, boy. And it's right. It's right of you to say you spent your Christmas day watching it because it does take an entire day to it's watch. True. Um, it sure does. In yeah. Fact, yeah. It, it really does. But the day before Christmas Eve, which I think I'm just going to say was my Christmas. Uh, I watched Avatar The Way of Water for a second time with my mother. Uh, once again, AOR provided. Scott, there, there's a really hilarious um story about this actually not it, funny retrospectively very anxiety inducing in the moment we woke up christmas eve morning um 
and I'm, I went to the bathroom in the middle of the night and half asleep forgot to leave the tap dripping um, from the cold weather. And so my Uh-oh. upstairs sink uh, pipe had frozen. Mm. And we also had a power outage for the first two hours Friday, Thursday, Friday morning. Two hours. Wow, for the okay. first two hours. Yeah, for two hours Friday morning, it was freezing um, already because it had been sub, you know, 20 degrees with wind chills at zero for a whole day prior to that. And then everything happened where... You know, the pipe, the pipes were frozen and we were like very anxious about it. Everything else was like all the other pipes in the house were fine because we had dripped all of them. But then we set up like a like a dog. Like we have a camera. My mom has camera for the dogs to be able to watch the dogs when she's away in case something's happening or if something were to happen. And we repositioned it where we for whatever reason, just because we were just a ball of anxiety, repositioned the camera to like look at the tap. Um, so we could check it periodically because then we went out. We're like, okay, we should just get out of the house and like, you know, for <laughs> do something to not worry about this. And go then, see a 180 pluser. Yeah, to, yeah, go go see a, a 180 pluser. And it was still frozen when we left to go see the movie. We went to go see Avatar: The Way of Water. Walk out of the theater, go to the bathroom, come back out, and my mom is standing there, and she is like, the water is running, and I'm like, Awa has provided. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the way there of water has no beginning and no end, Scott. That's all I'll say. That that is pretty perfect and pretty pretty fitting, but yeah, back to back one eighty pluses on Christmas. Uh, shout out to your mom for uh, I know real that. champion. I yeah. you know I I wasn't surprised that she can make it through Avatar, but um, I wasn't sure about Babylon. Not not to show my cards about it, but like it, it's a lot. And when I and I said oh boy earlier, I meant just like it's a lot. It's a lot of a movie, good or bad. It's a lot of a movie. We'll talk about it later on in the episode, but maybe we'll save it for that. Why don't we go ahead and start unwrapping our Christmas presents? to see what exactly we've been given. And we'll start today with Glass Onion, a Knives Out mystery, written and directed by the man behind the original Knives Out back in 2019, Ryan Johnson. Glass Onion sees Daniel Craig's detective Benoit Blanc return for a second outing with an otherwise completely new ensemble cast, including Ed Norton as an eccentric and mysterious tech billionaire, Miles Braun, Janelle Monet as Miles' ex-business partner, Cassandra or Andy Brand, and the cohort of Dave Bautista, Catherine Hahn, Leslie Odom Jr., and Kate Hudson, all as various acolytes of Miles, nicknamed his, quote, disruptors, who have relied on his success to boost their own careers. Set in the early days of the COVID-19 pandemic, Miles has planned his annual week-long getaway for his disruptors and Andy at his private island mansion off the coast of Greece. Upon arrival, the disruptors are surprised when they are joined by the famous detective Blanc. Surprise, which extends even to Miles, who is mystified by both Andy's acceptance of his invitation after their um, very dramatic breakup from a business perspective and Blanc's presence, but permits him to stay, assuming it's a prank being pulled by one of his disruptors. Miles' plans are for everyone to relax, enjoy each other's presence, and have them all partake in a murder mystery game of his own design. It's a Knives Out mystery, though, so unsurprisingly, things escalate beyond an overly contrived game of whodunit as something potentially much more sinister could be afoot to avoid any further spoilers. I'll stop there, Scott. We both had the chance to catch the film in movie theaters during its limited one week release around Thanksgiving. And then the pleasure of a second in your case, a third in mine viewing this past week with our families after it dropped on Netflix. And the question I think is simple. Does Ryan Johnson's second comedy caper live up to the quality of the first that drove it to be one of the most surprising successes of 2019 or has Johnson written and directed his way into a sophomore slump? Yeah, no, as you alluded to there, I did see this in theaters during Thanksgiving uh, for my first watch. 
But as with a movie like this, and I think this was the case with the first Knives Out as well, um, the second viewing is almost like as as important as the first viewing, I think, because, um, you know, the first viewing, you're trying to just sort of figure everything out for yourself. And then on that second viewing, obviously, you know, all the twists and reveals and, you know, everything that comes with a whodunit. And so it's more about seeing how everything was constructed and, you know, does it hold up, right? Does does what is revealed, um, you know, to be going on, was it, you know, put together in a, a smart, clever way? And at least for me, a way where you could reasonably have reached the conclusion uh, that the movie wants you to reach on your own, right? Without, you know, the movie um, having to sort of guide you along there. And so I was really interested to watch watch it for the second time because I, um, you know, I really did enjoy the movie the first time. I, I thought it was, you know, a great time. Um, I did, you know, it, it was surprising. I was kept guessing, but also came away thinking that it was all put together very well. Um, and, you know, it is a, you know, hallmark of the, the whodunit genre, at least good whodunits, and also... Um, very explicitly stated in the movie, right, that everything is in plain sight. Um, it's an idea that is sort of repeated in the movie. And to me, and we've talked about this before on the podcast with, you know, just thriller movies kind of in general, movies that are premised on sort of twists and, and big reveals. Um, it's all about, you know, putting those pieces together. And what a really, what a really talented director can do is um, show you what is going on early on in the movie without actually showing it to you, right? With uh, putting all the clues right there in plain sight, quote unquote, but doing enough to distract you from the fact that um, that they're actually there. And then, you know, when the reveals actually happen, all your all that's really being revealed is what you missed earlier in the movie. I mean, I, I enjoy that. Um, I think that's the the better way to do it than right than simply hiding facts from the audience and then you know the reveal being something that you really could have never put together on your own. We talked about that a little bit with See How They Run um, earlier this year. That was kind of a problem I had with that movie is that I think the movie was obfuscating some facts that you really needed in order to to reach the conclusion uh, of the mystery. I don't, for the most part, think that Knives Out, uh, that Glass Onion falls um, prey to that same trap. Now, there was a couple things, which I do want to get into a little bit later, um, that I caught on the second time around, where I do think um, maybe there is some information that is withheld from us um, at certain points. But I thought it was, I thought it was still a great time. I thought almost all of the mystery still held up really well. I really like the new cast of characters that are introduced. Um, but really, at the end of the day, the star for me is still Daniel Craig of these movies. And I think, um, you know, structuring the movie around him and the fact that, you know, he's the only returning cast member from the first movie. Um, you know, if there's I presume there's going to be more of these movies because I think, you know, this one is going to be very successful. It was, it was successful in his limited theatrical run, and it's going to be, I think, extremely successful on Netflix, um, if I had to predict. Um, Netflix bought two, and, nine, bought two sequels, right. so there's definitely going to be a third one. 
Right. And I think he's a great protagonist to have, you know, a great sort of quirky detective. Um, and he really is, again, the highlight of these movies. Like as long as obviously it's a star studded cast, it was a star studded cast in the first one. But as long as he's there, I think you can put, you know, even pieces around him that maybe aren't as star studded and you're still going to come out with something pretty fun, you know, along with the fact that it's Ryan Johnson who's behind the camera and writing this and putting it all together. Um, You know, as many have pointed out, this movie also has, as did the first one, you know, some some substance on its mind. Um, It doesn't necessarily just want to be a fun romp, romp. And I do think that, some of the commentary that the movie has, particularly with Edward Norton's character, Miles Braun, is very timely, um, almost, you know, shockingly so, uh, speaking to the the present moment in a way that maybe Ryan Johnson couldn't have even predicted that he w- it was going to when he had originally wrote the movie, um, because the events that it bears similarity to happened very recently. Um, but... Um, Ultimately, in so so you know that stuff works. It, I think it mostly worked in the first movie as well, sort of, um, it, which was more sort of about like xenophobia and the treatment of um, Ana de Armas's character Marta um, by the family at large. But um, ultimately, for me, not every movie has to be like a big issue movie, even when it's trying to be. Um, and again, I don't think this movie is trying to like. I don't think that's the first thing on its mind. Um, I think it wants to be a fun, you know, murder mystery. And in that regard, I think it wholly succeeds. The fact that there is a little bit of, you know, fun commentary underneath the surface is an added bonus to me. But, um, you know, I think if from from what I have seen on Twitter and things like maybe some people are overblowing the fact um, the the extent to which there is, you know, quote unquote discourse going on about the movie. But I don't think there's necessarily a need to have these big back and forth debates about the politics of the movie or the the messaging of the movie. At the end of the day, it's, you know, it's a genre movie, first and foremost, in my opinion. And in that regard, it wholly succeeds. Um, And I don't, you know, while I do come away with from it also thinking about, oh, hey, that was, you know, that was really timely. That was on point. It doesn't go that much deeper for me. Like, I'm not out here saying that this was some sort of searing social commentary, um, you know, that needs to be shown in schools or something like that. Um, this needs to be shown in schools, but not because it's a social commentary. Yeah. <laughs> um, but again, I, I think the movie succeeds as much as the first movie, my on my first watch, I actually thought I might like it a little bit more than the first movie. After the second, I think I'm I'm back to thinking it's either on the just you know about equal quality or maybe that the first one is slightly better. But the fact that he was able to you know hit that high water mark set by the first movie is impressive in and of itself. And like pretty much everyone else who's watched this movie, I too am very much looking forward to what comes next in the Knives Out um, series, because these are just, you know, super fun mysteries. It's not a genre you see often. You have a great character in Benoit Blanc to structure them around. And, you know, they're they're kind of just throwaway movies. I don't say that as as a, you know, criticism of them, but it's not, again, where it's like, 
they're building this whole universe or anything. Like we learn a couple more things about Benoit Blanc in this movie, but I don't think the movie has, you know, any sort of serialized elements in mind going forward. Like, again, these are just kind of modern day Agatha Christie type, you know, murder mysteries. You have your, your one detective who remains the consistent presence, but otherwise you're introducing like a whole new cast of characters. And after the success of these first two movies, I see no reason why he should reinvent the wheel going forward because they're both, um, you know, just just some of the most fun movies of the last few years. Yeah, you mentioned not wanting to rein like him not needing to necessarily reinvent the wheel. I think one of the real really spectacular things about Glass Hunting is how it feels both very similar to Knives Out in it's sort of like okay if you do, if you don't really think about the details of the structure like it is a mystery with a twist um and not like a twist in the mist it's like a twist in the mystery itself that it's not a, it's not necessarily the mystery you think that it is starting out like knives out it was like harlan thromby has been murdered and the twist of it spoilers i guess for the first knives out movie is that he actually just committed suicide there wasn't actually a murder that happened in that case um but there's still a mystery at the center of what's going on about how this incidental suicide happened because it, there were circumstances surrounding it, obviously. And Glass Onion takes that sort of highest level 40,000 foot view structure of I'm going to give you a mystery with a bit of a twist and says, well, actually, unlike the, the first movie, who's like murder in quotation marks happens at the beginning of the film, the murder that's actually at the heart of Glass Onion takes place, you know, before either a before the movie starts depending on how you look at it or b um in the middle of the film <laughs> um so it's very it's very eccentric in that way it's still i think it still has like the heart and soul of agatha christie to what you're saying at its core but i just find it you know infinitely engaging that ryan johnson is able to write these narratively very interesting whodunits i just remember reading like a, a complaint one time about knives out being like why do people think Knives Out is a good movie? It's a horrible film. Like, there's not even a murder that happens in it. I'm like, my guy, that is literally the point of why it's interesting. <laughs> um, it they are not. He's not remaking, and then there were none, and that is why it's interesting. Um, he's yeah. doing something much more. Um, yeah, it, he's he he's not reinventing the wheel, but at the same time, he's not doing the same thing. He's either. playing with genre conventions. Absolutely. And I think that's what makes him such an interesting writer director. He played with genre conventions in Star Wars. He's played with genre conventions in nearly everything that he's done um, before that. His as first well. movie was a film noir, like yeah, Brick, Brick, like and was, then you know a film noir, but set in a high school. So yeah, yeah. Looper, which was this sort of sci-fi um, flick travel as well. Movie, yeah. yeah, time travel, um, interacting with your future self, and the consequences of that. Like, uh, you know, I'm not going to say that's an overplayed or overwrought genre like subgenre of film but he still took it engaged with it and did his own thing with it and that's just what makes him such a special filmmaker and one of the reasons why i'm excited about everything's done i feel like there's this weird i'm in this weird position of like man it's just really great to have ryan johnson making weird you know mysteries like this that are just so fun and enjoyable to watch at the same time like does he want to create new like something new as well as like an original film because technically this isn't an original film anymore like this is I was actually just going through this the other day. I'm like, well, technically, this is an adapted screenplay now. It's not an original yeah. screenplay at it the is. Oscars this year. I'm like, that's so weird. But I guess that is definitely true. Um, I mean, that's neither really here nor there. Just a point of of tension. But I'm perfectly content for Ryan Johnson to turn out a um, Knives Out mystery every two to three years and have that be what he does until he's, you know, 
gestated on something new long enough. Cause I'm sure like, this is not the only thing that he's working on. I mean, he has poker face, a TV show coming out in January, which is, you know, definitely the murder mystery adjacent genre. Um, he's sort of taking the, I believe it's called like the how done it of Columbo, um, where you, where it lays out everything that happened, like the murder at the beginning of the episode. And then the mystery is solving how it was done. Mm -hmm. Um, so he's working on other stuff. He's clearly interested in this type of thing. And I just think it's great that he's doing stuff like that. As for the characters. Yeah. I mean, Daniel Craig, I, I think what makes Benoit Blanc so interesting is that he, again, to reference Agatha Christie, he's like, he's not Hercule Poirot. He's not a genius detective. I mean, the truth is that Benoit Blanc is like probably a mediocre detective. Yeah. <laughs> if you really think about like what he's done in the first two movies. And I, and I was seeing a thread on Twitter explaining how that's like one of the most charming things about him is that he's not this like, rando white savior for Ana de Armas or Janelle Monet's character in these two films. He's just like kind of there and like facilitates like the mystery being uncovered to happen. Um, he's doing like maybe half of the work in the films. And then like the other lead characters in the films are doing the rest. Um, and I found that very charming and endearing. It's not, you know, like the reason you watch this film is not necessarily the same reason why you watch death on the Nile this year. Um, and I just think that's really, that's really cool. I think Daniel Craig plays that sort of uh, that silliness really well. I mean, it, it, he's a comedic character. There's no doubt about that. And he plays it with the right level of sincerity. I think that could easily be overcooked or undercooked um, with by another actor. So I think that's really excellent. And, you know, the supporting cast here is great. I mean, I didn't mention everyone's names. At the start, I just sort of mentioned like sort of the central disruptors in the supporting cast. But you you have Jessica Henwick and Madeline Klein who are sort of along for the ride as well. And I think both of them are really good in the film, too, along along with the rest of them. I thought, you know, Dave, I, I think I, I'd say about half of Dave Bautista, Catherine Hahn, Leslie M. Jr., Kate Hudson are good in this movie. Other half are like they're there. They're not bad, but they're not distracting, but they're not necessarily standing out. But I thought Dave Bautista and Kate Hudson are really good. Not as impressed with Leslie Odom Jr. and Catherine Hahn in the film, but I also think they're they're the characters with the least to do in the meat in the meatier part of the movie. So that's probably an explanation. I, I guess I'd say Jessica Henwick is in that group as well, and Madeline Klein is in is in the other. Yeah. Um, Jessica Henwick is definitely in there. Like Pe Peg is like basically just there to be hung like, out to dry. Oh, yeah. that's right. She's still here. Yeah. Character like you know she's really not. That yeah yeah no that, I, I think that's true i think that's true of Catherine and leslie adam jr as well but then madeline klein i think shows that maybe there's something about her that goes beyond you know a netflix teen comedy drama a ya adaptation basically i know it's not an adaptation but like a ya show so i thought that was cool i thought she was really interesting really good in the movie so overall um you know I, i'm not going to sit here and, and lie and say this i think this is as good as the incredibly high bar that I think the first film is like, I love the first film even more than you do. I rewatch it annually at Thanksgiving. I think it's going to age a lot better than this movie as well. You talk about like the timeliness of some of the humor um, that sort of is lined up in this film. I think that is one of the things that is quite different about this movie. And the first one is that it's sort of the, the color of the humor is different. I, I do think that, a lot of the humor in the first film will feel more timeless. More, more of the jokes will apply across, across years and across you know moments in time. I'm not sure that all of them here will, 
all that said, the jokes in this are still very like it's still a very funny movie. I just don't know if like people are in like 10 years, people are going to get all the jokes this movie is making. Um, whereas I think people will still be getting the jokes 10 years from now about Knives Out that Knives Out is, was making. Again, that's like on the margins. I still thought this movie was fantastic. Um, Nathan Johnson, once again, Ryan Johnson's cousin doing the score for this film. Great score. Just fantastic mm-hmm. score. Um, just just like the first film. Uh, I just think everything was wrong. Some great cameos as well. Um, Ethan Hawke, hilarious cameo in this movie. So funny. Uh, I, I'm still annoyed about it because he would have been great in a future Knives Out film. And now they've, That's true. they've ruined his card. So that maybe he pops up though, Scott. You never know. He could be a random person who pops up. I suppose it's possible. But uh, yeah, Joseph Gordon Levitt really getting the shaft as just the clock that goes. Well, he was in. Well, see, this is see, this is where we've we've caught him out because he he was also a voice on the phone in the first movie. So oh okay, he's uh he's featuring in all of them. He's he's got a multi part role in this franchise. One of his best performances in years, honestly, in this movie. I'm not touching that one. I'm not getting. I mean, you're, I mean, I have no opinion on one or the other because I can't think of a single thing that he's done recently. Oh, I guess he did the Apple Charles TV Plus. Chicago Seven. Right. God, was that recent? Oh, I guess 2020. 2020, right? 2020. Yeah. So long ago yeah. at this point. He did some Apple TV Plus movie last year, right? Didn't he? I don't know. Some that sounds movie. right. Some airplane film. Whatever. Oh yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Flight something. I don't know. Um, there's a number after it. I'm not sure. Yeah. Anyway. Scott, the cast of characters in this film. I talked about my thoughts about the supporting characters, but there are two <laughs> more central supporting slash co-leads with Benoit Blanc, uh, Daniel Craig, Benoit Blanc in this movie. That is Miles Braun, who's played by Ed Norton, and then Andy Brand, played by Janelle Monet. A lot of people, I think, call, like calling out that Janelle Monet is the real standout of at least the newcomers in the cast. Would you agree with that? Um, do you have other thoughts on Ed Norton's performance as well? Just give me give me the download. Yeah, I do think Janelle Monet is very good. Um, we're not quite talking spoilers yet, but you know, she, her performance ends up changing over the course of the movie. Um, it, you a get a new perspective on what she's doing. Yes, yeah. um, in a way that I think reveals that oh, she's actually giving you know quite a, a skilled and tricky performance. Um, as this character. I do think of the supporting cast, Ed Norton is probably the standout for me, and that was something I clocked a little bit more on the second watch, um, is I just think, um, you know, to to piggyback on what people are saying, he sort of embodies this Elon Musk-esque figure very well. Um, And, you know, he's he's kind of smug, but at the end of the day, he's just like his main characteristic is he's full of crap. And I think you pick up on that again, a lot more on subsequent watches, knowing where the movie is going. Um, On the first watch, you know, you you've been told that he's like some brilliant, you know, tech genius, mogul dude. And that kind of colors how you first see this character. Um, But then again, as is as as you should when you rewatch the movie, you start seeing the little things that are you know the little clues that are laid along the way. That hey, maybe this character isn't actually um, the person that everyone is sort of describing him as early on in the movie. Um, and so I think he embodies you know that that character 
quote unquote character, but honestly, real sort of person we see nowadays. I mean, it's not even, and it's not even just Elon Musk. You know, a lot of people, you know, have said you could sort of interchange any sort of tech giant with this, um, you know, person. Maybe it's Jeff Bezos or somebody like that. Maybe even Zuckerberg, I saw Zuckerberg, a, but... but yeah, any, I mean, any of them, but um, maybe you, um, I saw a, t- a thread on Twitter today that maybe you can just say that this character is the embodiment of Netflix itself, right? And that Ryan Johnson is sort of pulling one over on Netflix by making a movie that sort of clowns them and their, you know, model and approach to, you know, streaming content. Yeah. Um, wh- whichever approach you take, I think it's, you know, a spot on portrayal by Edward Norton. And I would point to him as the standout. Though I think, again, Janelle Monet is good. She brings a lot of heart to the role. She, you know, is sort of the sidekick role. She ends up being sort of the sidekick role that Ana de Armas played in the first movie. Um, So there is a little bit of similarity there, I think, with how things unravel. But um, it's it's a strong performance, and I, I do understand why people are sort of calling her out. Yeah, I, I love these two performances as well. I probably even more than most people really loved Chris Evans in the first film for different reasons than I like Ed Norton in this role. And I think that there's a lot more nuance in what Ed Norton is doing in this than what Chris Evans was doing. But I think he just nailed that performance as um, Ransom in, in the first film. But yeah, Ed Norton and Janelle Monet here, I think both giving layered performances that really do benefit from the rewatch, having gotten the chance to really well, one rewatch it in the theater, but then again rewatch it, you know, a few days ago with my mom when it came out um, on Netflix. Yeah, it just it's it's very clear, not just from the structure of the film, but from the performances. Like, I think it really does lay out a lot of things, and and then you can see a lot of the mystery that's happening in the performances as well. And so I think it's a really great job from all involved there, and. You know, these are not performances that are going to probably be on the lips of Oscar voters when it comes time. But I think that they're up there in some of the great and some of the better performances of the year, if I'm being really honest about it. Yeah, I mean, again, what they are they're being asked to do is pretty difficult, um, even when you take into account that this is a, a genre film. So, yeah, um, you I, have to be in the know, but but act as if you're out. You're. Yeah. Yeah, both in and out of the note at the same time. It's, it's like a, it, I feel like it's always very difficult to do stuff like that. But um, I'm also not an actor, so maybe it's not. Some know. pretty good drunk acting as well by Janelle Monet. That yeah, 100. percent Yeah, there's she's. I mean, that's what you get when you bang down Jared Leto's kombucha or whatever. I mean, that's you just right. can't. Jared Leto's hard kombucha. Yeah, scary stuff. Uh, any thoughts on some of the supporting cast? There it sounds like um, you, know, you interjected a couple of your thoughts a little bit earlier on, but any anyone stand out? I think everyone is very well cast. Like I think yeah. everyone is put in a role that does not ask them to go out outside of what they normally do very well. You know, Dave Bautista is playing like a meathead men, men's rights YouTuber. Yeah. And Kate Hudson is like this sort of very ditzy, like, yeah, she she runs a clothing company, but her thing is that she is like, quote unquote, accidentally like stumbling into all these scandals, which are usually like racist, like her wearing blackface as a quote unquote tribute to Beyonce, or there's some other examples that are mentioned throughout the movie. But basically, um, she's that kind of character who is 
maybe she's too dumb to understand what she's doing or maybe it's just kind of playing putting on an act a little bit um who you know we don't really know but it's nice to see her back yeah you know in a significant movie because um it has been a minute for her and even if it's a down the middle part for her like she you know shows that she's still got it yeah and you know she, she got lost in, in uh, the sahara desert after shooting fool's gold or whatever wasn't that yeah yeah, yeah. Yeah. Um, you know, Leslie Adam Jr., I agree with you. He's not asked to do a whole lot. He's very sort of straight-laced character as the scientist who's, you know, directly working for Miles Braun's company. And then, you know, Catherine Hahn is the soccer mom politician again. Like, you know, maybe she leans a little bit more towards the comedy side sometimes, but like we just saw her play like a mom type character um in WandaVision. So um, you know, it's not a a role that is uncomfortable to her so um i think uh, you know again that uh, this that's not a knock on anyone it's just you know they are put in roles that are very well suited to the talents that, that they have already you know displayed in their in their past past uh you know films and, and tv shows and stuff like that so i think ryan johnson did a really good job in in that aspect and yeah some of the other players like madeline klein and jessica hennick and um you know the guy that's who plays Daryl. Oh yeah, um, there's Daryl. Daryl's great. Um, yeah. But yeah, that's Darryl. basically it. Dallas Roberts. Uh, no, that's Devin. Never mind. Um, Noah Segan. Anyway, that's, Noah Segan. That's yeah. who it is. They're they're all good. Wait, um, that's right. He plays Trooper Wagner. That's so he has. That's right. Oh my gosh! It all comes back to me, Ralph. Trooper in, in what? He plays the clean-shaven Trooper Wagner in in the first movie, but he looks completely different in this one. Oh, interesting. Oh, so that's, that's right. kind of a fun gag. That's a fun gag. Yeah. Um, that's right. But yeah, no, everyone's good. Um, I I feel that, you know, the cast as a whole is on the same level as the first movie where I don't know that there's anyone I would really point to out of sort of the supporting cast is like, oh, that's the standout. Um, mm-hmm. But one does what they're asked to do very capably. Jackie Hoffman. Duke's mom. Sure. Yeah. I mean, she plays a great mom. It's true. Or great, you know, older mom, grandma, grandma type character and stuff. Sure. All right, Scott, let's take the gloves off. Let's get into spoilers. Let's talk about the structure of this film. You know, that we do get a sort of like, I don't know. It's not quite Rashomon, like from a, like a retelling of the first half of the movie from a different perspective. It's not quite that. It's something a little bit different um, going on here. But basically halfway through the film, it looks like um, a couple murders have happened at this point. It looks like Dave Bautista's character has been has been poisoned in his um, by someone slipping something into his drink. Um, maybe that was intended for Miles rather um, than Duke, but it does end up in Dave Bautista's drink. And then also in the sort of ensuing chaos after his death, um, Janelle Monae's character appears to be murdered as well by gunshot with Duke's gun. And it is at this point where we sort of rewind all the way back to the beginning of the film and sort of show some bits that were left out um, that we could not have. And maybe this is one of the things that you're going towards, Scott. Um, But there are certainly parts of the film that are then revealed that there's no way you could have known about, Um, namely that Andy, Janelle Monae's character, um, is not Andy. It's actually her twin sister, um, also played by Janelle Monae, of course, of Helen. And she is the one who went to Benoit Blanc's apartment in New York and asked him to essentially go to the island with her and help him 
help her catch the people who actually had already killed her sister. Um, and she wasn't, she isn't sure who it is, but she knows it's one of Miles's disruptors who has done it. And so that's sort of like the obfuscated piece of the narrative that you don't know about going onto the island. But with that knowledge, it then replays a lot of the scenes, adding new material, to be fair. Um, but what I found to be in a very clever way, um, certain like certain angles show you parts of the screen that were out of vision before that explains more of the narrative that you could have caught um, if you're paying really close attention the first time through. But it's much easier the second time through when it gives you a different angle to see stuff that's happening. So um, I'll, I'll sort of stop there and get your thoughts because I know you, you, you wanted to talk about this in a little bit more detail, but the structure of this film is laid out and then it sort of works its way to a conclusion that is quote unquote in plain sight, Scott. So maybe we talk about that, that, that framing structure first, and then we can maybe talk about the, the answer to the mystery, which, you know, the finale of the film, which it builds up to. Yeah, I do really like this structure, um, you know, yeah. most of the time when, when it is employed, the idea, you know, that, oh, we're going to show you sort of what you just saw again, but now with, you know, new information, Some new piece it's going to take, yeah, yeah with, with new knowledge, it's going to take on a different meaning than the first time you saw it. But I will say, yeah, the the one sort of complaint that I do have is um, that I do think there's some stuff withheld here and that even with your new knowledge, you know, there there's things that you could, could just could not have possibly seen the first time because they're not um, in planes in plain sight. Right. And that, and that's the other thing is the movie's leaning. So it wouldn't be that big of a deal, but the movie is leaning, leaning so hard into the it's all there in plain sight, which eh, it is and it isn't like what ends up happening what we learn about what happened to andy and to the real andy and then again what happens to duke while they're at you know at the the home all that stuff is is great and all the clues are sort of there for that um it's just the whole sort of reveal around helen being you know existing and then her collaboration with blanc and like the early parts of the mystery that um like, for example, you know, we see them, you know, the first time around, we see them arrive on the island. You know, they're all meeting Miles, you know, saying hello to Miles, whatever. They walk off and then um, Helen and Benoit Blanc have a conversation. She tells him, oh, you got a flat tire there, right? You got your shoes untied. And the scene cuts away the first time. But the second time we then see that, oh, after she told him to tie a shoe, that was like a, a front so that, you know, he could he would lean down and then they could have a stealthy conversation about their plan and whatnot. You know, you could have never seen that the first time around. Um, so, you know, that that is one thing that like it just doesn't it, it's not what I personally, you know, love to see in these these types of movies. Mm -hmm. But it's probably it might be a necessary evil for what they're trying to do with um with the story and with you know the reveal here again and, and again the the twin reveal like you know it's it's somewhat of a cliche we've seen you know this done in movies before and mystery stories and things like that um it can be an easy way out but you know again i don't think that's giving ryan johnson enough credit probably for how well put together the whole thing is and you know this is just one of the you know, several twists and reveals which come throughout the movie. And I think, you know, most, if not all of the others work, you know, very yeah. well compared to this one. Yeah, I think one of the things the movie does really well, 
I mean, that is definitely true. Like there's, I really don't think even with all of the breadcrumbs the film does give you that you could guess that Andy is actually her twin sister yeah. in the first part of the and film. And I wanted to see the, uh, I wanted to see the second time around if you could actually see when she tosses the tape recorder into Kate Hudson's. Well, see, I, I didn't see it the second time around. Um, we're going to, we're, okay. we're going to do a, a, what is it? Mystery science frame by frame. Uh, yeah. yeah Zapruder. We're going to, you can, I promise you, you can, cause I saw okay. it in the theater. Okay. Um, well, that's so, good. Then. Yeah. 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 And that, that, that is actually that thing that you're talking about right there is the thing that just sort of blew my mind on the second watch. I was like, you can, if you're just watching Kate Hudson's bag, in that scene, you will see the tape recorder. Okay, but you can't actually it. see her physically. You it. can't see Andy throwing, okay. or you can't see Janelle throwing it into the bag. But you, you can see, see it the tape recorder in, in the bag. bag, and then like a minute later, she she's shows up on she's the chair. she's sitting there, right? Like she's so that's just sitting there. Yeah, yeah. So because what I was going to say is that I think that is absolutely true. But I think by the time you're getting to the point where Janelle Monet like is murdered, because we do again spoilers on the table here. Like she's not murdered; she's still alive. She gets. The, the journals that she of Andy's that she has blocks the bullet from penetrating her, her heart and whatnot. And she is still alive in that. But when you get to that point, the first time through the movie, I think you can know that something, something is up between, because, between yeah, Blanc because and, like and the her. last thing Blanc says to her, like before she gets shot is like, no. Oh, we're just, we just need like one, one more, more piece of information. Yeah. I mean, he also calls her Helen at one point in the first part of the oh, movie. Yeah, okay. Yeah. 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 Okay, um, I didn't even know that, but but yeah, basically that that would be a very weird thing for him to say to you know the person that he supposedly just met. Yeah. So that is when like you start to realize something's going on, and I mean that's right. basically the moment where we then go back to the right beginning. So, so yeah, but but I guess to finish the thought here is that the reason why that uh, that level of obfuscation about the twins, like I don't think you could guess it's her twin sister. Yeah, I mean, maybe you could if you're just like super plugged in, and maybe maybe you could you could make an assumption that it is. I'm not saying it's impossible, but I think you can the the film gives you enough in the first half, uh, at least on the two rewatches that I've had, where you can know something is up. You can see a lot of the stuff happen. Like you can see in plain sight, Ed Norton giving Dave Bautista his drink in the in the first in yeah, the first yeah, run through. Definitely, and that, can, that's what I yeah yeah so that's what I was saying is like a lot of that stuff and you yeah. know the the story about what really happened to Andy like you know yeah. The, him almost getting hit by the car. Yeah, but yeah, the, yeah, that, know, that, all that the, stuff. All that stuff. Yeah. I mean, even even there. the letter, Andy's letter, the red letter, you can see it in the first time they're in the glass yeah, onion. I, I assume yeah. so. Yeah. 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 It's like pretty. And I, I think that is something that, like, I look, I don't think you should go into a mystery movie watching a film that way. And because and, I think you're just not going to enjoy it very much if you go into a yeah. movie just trying to see everything on that first watch. But it is what makes that second, that third, et cetera, watches right. that you go through even more enjoyable. Um, then the first one sometimes is all, the, all these breadcrumbs that you were left. And then the second half of the film, when it switches and you get the full information, and it shows you all the things that you missed with your narrow perspective. Um, it, it, it's a very rewarding experience to me. And I think that's what makes even more so. Um, I guess in, in this respect, this film is even is much more successful that than the first one, because the first one wasn't structured that way, right? Yeah. Like it gives you all these clues. Um, but there's no sort of like, okay, let's go back over this again um, and and see how it all adds up. It's it's a little bit different. I just think that, yeah, the way that that the film approaches that is is really successful. Um, and Ryan Johnson is really cleverly deploying tactics there um, and just makes it a pleasure of a film, I think, to watch. And it all sort of leads to this, 
you know, finale where it's revealed that the Andy's murderer, um, because Andy has died, you know, days, you know, maybe a week before basically the events of the film, we'll call it. We find out that Miles is the one who murdered her. And really, Miles is just this really dumb, like half rate criminal <laughs> um, idiot that's that sort of glommed on to the to Andy's brilliance over the years and then steals Andy's company from her, basically. And that's how he got rich and he thinks he's gotten away with it. And then um, the sort of coup de gras of the film is this climactic scene where Blanc walks out, like leaves, leaves the room at this point because Miles has managed to destroy the evidence that they had against him, um, that he had lied and, and convinced the disruptors to lie about the founding of the company to cut Andy out of the business. Um, he burns that evidence because Helen, Janelle Monet's, you know, real character or whatever does something really stupid that I just can't believe you do <laughs> in a situation like this or holds whatever. It up, yeah. yeah. Holds it up for, for this napkin up to be burned by him basically. And it starts at this, this scene where Blanc gives her this other piece of um, the puzzle about the technology that he's been developing, that he wants to run the world on this new clean energy, this new hydrogen based clean energy. That's if you know anything about hydrogen, um, as a chemical that pure hydrogen is very flammable, very explosive. Um, and it sort of starts off this finale where she uses his hydro, his like hydrogen fuel to burn his island mansion to the ground, including the Mona Lisa that he actual has, the actual Mona Lisa that he has in the place and that he'd installed this fail safe override. Um, in the events of a fire that he could, that could be pressed and destroy it. So it all wraps up. And I think a pretty satisfying way. I, I, if I had one complaint, I think the final, the final, final part of this movie is like maybe a little bit long. Um, but that's like, that's like honestly the meanest critique I can, I can come up with for the movie. Yeah. So the one thing that I would say about this section mm -hmm. is, and my brother actually said it last night when we were watching it too. And I do think that I, have an explanation for it but like i don't know that it's the most satisfying explanation but basically you know um after he burns the napkin helen is like well you guys all saw it right like you're all gonna you know testify on my behalf and say hey we saw the napkin here and they're all like you know looking away like they're not gonna do it right they're gonna they're gonna screw her over again yeah and then she starts breaking the stuff and like all of a sudden they just join in and start breaking the stuff themselves and my brother's question was like well why was that the thing which like made them start um you know which made them change their minds so quickly the only thing i could figure is that you know miles braun the thing that he has always had over them is like money right he has given them money to support them in their yep. professional pursuits and everything and by breaking these sculptures and everything that are clearly worth a lot of money right she is kind of exposing that hey you know you can shatter this stuff pretty easily it's really not worth all that much it's probably not worth what you guys have given up mm -hmm. in terms of you know selling your soul selling your integrity whatever um which again i don't know if that's the most satisfying explanation for me like i I'm, might be bending over backwards a little bit to try and you know make some sense of it but i do think it is a it is a possible, you know, flaw a little bit, like lo just a logical thing like that, you know, just minutes after 
they have said they have acted like, oh, we're not going to, you know, testify against Miles again. Just because she breaks a couple of glass sculptures, they're like all of a sudden they decide to change their mind when they haven't changed their mind for for years about this. Yeah, I had a slightly different read of it. I actually view it as they don't they don't change their mind to go against Miles in that moment. They don't actually change their mind to go against Miles until they're sitting on the steps and sort of the last scene of the movie. I actually think it's more of a, all these people, you know, these disruptors or whatever, these people associated with him who are, you know, clinging on to his golden teat, as they say multiple times in the film, they're really frustrated by the fact that they feel like in the society that they live in, they have to do that to maintain their level of comfort and success. Um, you know, whatever it might be, they, they, they feel resentful that they, that they have to sort of betray their morals to defend this person who they don't really like anymore, but he provides for them. Like, you know, at the end of the day, like they, he funds, you know, Katie Hans campaign. Like he gives, Leslie Adam Jr.'s character, his job, he, you know, is going to maybe put Dave Bautista's, I mean, I know his character's dead by this point, but he's going to put his video, you know, on front and center and alpha news channel or whatever. Um, you know, Kate Hudson, he is the main investor in her, in her company. Like they feel, I think resentful that they require his support and they see Helen who is aggrieved by these things that miles has done breaking things. And they, sort of join in because it's this like cathartic shared experience. Like they're not going to betray miles, but it's this small way of like showing them their dissatisfaction with him yeah. without really, like really, because to your point, they're not those things like they're extremely expensive, but worth very little, you know, to your point. So it's like, it's not really hurting him um, to break these things. And, and even Ed Norton's like, you know, his miles is he's like, whatever, like break my sculpture. I don't give a shit. Like it doesn't matter. Like I've got what matters most. And you guys aren't touching that. And they only then sort of they're almost sort of like sheep in a way, right? Like it's only after they realize that miles is truly ruined that they really turn against him. Yeah, and, no, I and, think if you yeah. wanted to have a really cynical reading of like, Oh, Hey, the only reason they decide to turn away in the end is I, I think that's because, the reading. Yeah. Yeah. Not, yeah. Not because they have realized that they were morally wrong this whole time, but because they know miles no longer has anything that they can, that he can provide for them. He no longer has yeah. the, you know, or he is not going to, because yeah. he's going to, be he's not going to have the profile. Yeah. Um, and, I, and I think that's a hundred percent the read on that, that, That's yeah, how I've interpreted sure. it at least. And I, I think that's like, again, satisfying might not be the right word, but I think that makes a lot of sense for who these people are as, as characters. Um, yeah. I think that sort of aligns with everything you see in the movie. They're always waffling back and forth. Like Katie Hahn and Leslie Adams spend the entire movie waffling back and forth about whether they should like go forward with this hydrogen energy plan or whatever, and they do it because they're at the be like they're at the whims of Miles, who you know basically is the reason their careers even exist. But they're not necessarily happy about it. But they're going to keep doing what he asked them to do as long as he's footing the bill. Um, and and it, it's no longer it's only to the point where they realize that he's not going to be able to foot in the bill anymore. That they turn yeah. against him, and yeah. I think that's true of the other characters as well. So again, satisfying or not, I'm I'm not sure, but I think that it's a it's a more coherent read of what goes on in the finale. To be fair to you and I, and I kind of understand that reaction from from Rob because I don't think that's immediate. Like it, it took me several watches of the movie to really feel that way about the end of the movie. It's not something that immediately jumps out at me, but I I do, I do feel pretty good about that read now. Yeah, no, I I think that mostly makes sense. Um, you know, it is 
it is just a like you know they had the opportunity if they really wanted to during the trial for andy to like you know and even before get back at miles yeah yeah Yeah, um it just does feel a little weird that like everything seems to change because you know she broke a couple things but money has no morality baby yeah yeah that's that's very true all right scott unless you have anything else you want to add um i'll just say again nathan johnson's score very good for this i got the vinyl for the first film when they did a vinyl release of it i'll be getting the vinyl of this one as well very good stuff uh if there's nothing else then favorite scene or moment from glass onion oh that's a tough choice uh the whole movie correct yeah, I'm I'm trying to think. I guess my favorite scene would be, um, you know, they are brought to the island under the premise that um, that Miles Braun is going to be, quote unquote, murdered yeah. as part of a murder mystery game. And we finally get to the part where he is going to introduce the game. And Benoit Blanc solves yeah. the mystery immediately. Before it even starts, uh, really. Yeah, yeah, ruins the entire thing, you know, which he then reveal Edward Norton then reveals like, oh, um, it was written by Gillian Flynn yeah. and all this stuff. Uh, Do you know yeah. who she is? Oh, she's really good. She's expensive. That's what she is. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and so that was just it. it's funny, but also it's like, again, it's another way of like, oh, wow, the movie is now going to be something completely different because that's, you know, the whole time you're thinking, oh, this yeah. is going to be the murder mystery, right? It's going to be like, you know, somebody's actually going to kill Miles Braun, yeah. right? Like he set up this game and then he's actually going to be murdered. No, they they dispose of that whole thing in like, you know, this one five minute comedic scene. So I thought that was very well done. I mean, that, that's the, I mean, that is one, just one of his recurring bits is that he sort of undermines all your expectations in these sort of five minute yeah. comedic segments and just put, puts the whole movie or your expectations of the movie on, on its head and just rolls yeah. on with what he'd always intended. Um, it's a real marvelous feat of, you know, consistent feat that he manages, I think. Yeah, that, that's a great one. That was probably one of the ones that I was thinking about highlighting just for comedic moments. The sort of scene on the dock with Ethan Hawke, hilarious scene. I know that you're bitter about it and I totally get it, but so funny to see this guy, this random, very mysterious suit come up and just spray some random chemical into people's mouths and be like, Scott, you're good. You don't need to wear the mask. Yeah. Yeah. Um, And then the sort of preceding scene moment right after that, where they're on the boat and Leslie Odom Jr. or whatever is asking about the dock. He's and the captain who's Greek is like saying it's a, it's a shit dock, but he's, he's saying it's such a strong accent or whatever that, Mm -hmm. um, Leslie Odom Jr.'s character, whose name I just like, I can't remember his character's name at all, whatever. Um, and it's just like, he doesn't understand it until much later when it comes back up again. I can't, I don't know why I don't understand. I don't remember. I can't, I can't either. Lionel. I literally Lionel. Watched it last it's Lionel. Lionel. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Lionel Tucson. Anyway. All right, Scott, out of 10, what are you giving Glass Onion a Knives Out mystery? Yeah, I mean, I've poked a few holes in it, but um, there are remarkably few, which I think you, you can actually poke poke in it which is definitely saying something in this genre and yeah bring on more knives out mysteries i'm here for it 8.7 8.7 yeah it's a 9.2 for me um it's gone up pretty much on every rewatch which is more or less also how knives out the original film tracked for me as well um i love this film we didn't mention the cameo at the beginning of the film that i guess we should because it's just very eerie um when like the first 15 minutes of the movie movie angela lansbury 
and Stephen Sondheim appear on the screen. And that is, you know, the last footage of them in the movie. Um, not that Stephen Sondheim. If I was uh, Natasha Leggero, I would be watching my back because she's also appears in the same Zoom call as them. Natasha Leon. Yeah, I, I mix the two of them up all the time. But yes, Natasha, oh, okay. Natasha yeah, yeah, Leon, I think. Yeah, is yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, that Natasha was Leon. Natasha Leon, right? Yeah, Because yeah, yeah. Kareem Abdul-Jabbar is also on that. Then Yo-Yo oh, Ma. Oh, right, yeah, he's in it too. Yeah, Yo-Yo Ma is also just randomly at Kate Hudson's <laughs> quarantine party. Um, very weird and random. And then what's another one? Oh, Serena, the Serena Williams thing. That's so weird. <laughs> and so Hugh Grant, weird. of course, is is, uh, is yeah. Benoit Blanc's husband, so. I wonder how much they paid Jared Leto and Jeremy Renner for their likenesses to go on those bottles. Who even knows? Yeah. I mean, when you get $500 million from Netflix to make two movies, Let who it cares? Rip. Yeah. Maybe they just have residuals. Maybe Jared's like, oh, you can do it. I'll do it for free, but I need 1%. And Netflix <laughs> is like, sorry, there's no box office for this movie. <laughs> Maybe so. Yeah. Um, anyway, that will do it for our discussion of our first film in our double feature, Glass Onion and Knives Out Mystery. We'll take a short break. When we come back, we have... Plenty more movie to talk about with a review of Damien Chazelle's Babylon. We'll be right back. Welcome back for part two of today's episode of Some Like It, Scott. We got another movie. And as already mentioned before the break, our second review discussion for today is Babylon, written and directed by Damien Chazelle, famous, of course, for the likes of Whiplash, La La Land, and most recently, First Man. Babylon is set predominantly in the era of the roaring 20s and early 1930s in Hollywood and follows a hodgepodge of Hollywood stars and stars-to-be as their careers maybe arc and maybe fall. The hardworking Manny Torres, played by Diego Calva, a Mexican immigrant aspiring to be a filmmaker in his own right while working odd jobs for a famous Hollywood producer named Don Wallach. The ambitious Nellie Leroy, played by Margot Robbie, a brash starlet who Manny crosses paths with at a party early on in the movie, shortly before both have their chance at their big breaks. The troubled Jack Conrad, played by Brad Pitt, whose success as a leading man in the days of silent black and white films may be threatened by the looming presence of pictures with sound. And lastly, the talented Sidney Palmer, the black jazz trumpeter who seizes on his skills to become a star on the camera, playing his trumpet as well. The lives of all four of these individuals and others criss and cross over the course of the near 190-minute runtime, and Chazelle's vision for old, old Hollywood seems a, far, a fair bit grimier and glitters far less than other homages to a similar period, either because of, or maybe in spite of, the epic debauchery consistently displayed on screen during this film. Scott, did you find that Babylon had something interesting and maybe different to say about the period in which it's set? Or do you feel like Chazelle and co. here milked his blank check for all it was worth? Yeah, I mean, I just want to say I am all in favor of somebody like Damien Chazelle getting, as you say, a blank check to make this big expensive movie that he wants to make, to make it for three hours and seven minutes. Sure. I'm, I'm perfectly fine with that. Let him cook. Um, as I believe I have said in the past, 
With that being said, I do not like at all the way that he chose to spend his blank check and the way he, that he chose it. to use his three hours and seven minutes because this movie is kind of baffling to me, honestly. Um, it, it opens up with this scene of an elephant defecating oh, all over someone. Um, we then, yeah. yeah, we then briefly, you know, quickly cut to a prostitute peeing on a man um, <laughs> for his enjoyment. And then that kicks off this like 20, 25 minute party sequence that is just loud, blaring jazz music, people doing drugs all over the place. Um, you have a dead body, you have, the prostitute ends up dying. Um, and you know, they've got to get the body out of here. There's an elephant, the elephant, you know, from the first scene, the elephant also in the room up showing up. Um, and it is just sensory overload, it is an assault on the senses, sure. And you think, okay, this is like you know, very pointedly after this whole sequence is over, and it's a long sequence, then they drop the title, right? And you think, all right okay, well, you know, we've gotten that out of the way. Now that was your cold open. Like, aren't we all dazzled now by like the, you know, technical prowess that he was able to show off? Because there's certainly a lot of technical prowess in this film. But then the whole movie is like that, Scott. Um, it is, you know, there are other party sequences, you know, just to be, to be straight on. Mm -hmm. And then, but even in the scenes that are not parties, like people are screaming profanities, like, over and over again they you know are doing a hit, mountains of cocaine like um it is every sort of cliche about this you know industry and the people within it and this time period dialed up to 11 shoving it in your face like the cake that you know margot robbie shoves in her face at one point later in this movie mm -hmm. and it's a three-hour movie. It's just absolutely exhausting, and there it it seems to be serving very little purpose. All of the excess, except to say, you know, look at how garish and awful, awful and yeah. exploitative this lifestyle can be, and just repeating that over and over again, repeating it in, in different ways, but like, you know, in the same. Baz Luhrmann-esque, you know, just pounding you over the head with, um, again, Justin Hurwitz's score, which is, it's a great score, but, like, it never seems to, like, be dialed down at any point in this film. And, again, not four or five minutes go by without somebody screaming um, and, and, you know, yelling. And just the, the trajectory that the plot takes, it just feels like, it's another like a star is born type story. Right. And I don't feel like there's really that much, that many wrenches thrown in the conventional star is born type story. Um, you know, I mean, I mean, they're not, they're not together in the film, but the Jack Conrad versus, I don't know, Nelly Leroy. Again, it doesn't map perfectly because there's obviously individual differences in the characters, but like that is the star is born duality yeah. of yeah. a star who already exists fading star who doesn't yet exist shining starting to shine brighter again i understand the, the movie tracks a little bit differently but it, it's there it's clouds of sills maria which is not really a, a movie that i thought i would bring sure, up in yeah. this review but ever um, but yeah 
but so you know again it's you, you it's very predictable in my opinion um you know where these characters arcs are kind of going to go um and Definitely. i will say that i don't think any of the three performances are particularly compelling we can talk a little bit more about those but I, that doesn't help either and you get through all of this and then we have the ending of the movie which i won't spoil it quite yet but it's it's extremely unexpected <laughs> number one just in the sense that you know you would just never guess in this type of movie what you're going to see on the screen at the end of this movie but also because it seems to be at odds with everything else that has come before it in the movie and i understand that maybe to some extent that is kind of the point but it's definitely the point yeah but i also think he you know he's having his cake and eating it too and it can I be the point and not be good at the same time yeah i think yeah. he wants I, I still think in order for it to work you have to find something seductive about these party scenes and about the you know opening hour or so of this movie where they are like you know falling into the movie industry and i just don't because of the way that he's chosen to portray it right like even the opening party scene right it's like Diego Calva is having to figure out a way to get this freaking dead body out of the house or whatever that there's nothing like appealing about that whatsoever. Um, like oh, I think, I think that's, that's definitely not supposed to, I mean, that work that he's doing is not supposed to be appealing to be fair. I think, I think the part, which maybe is what you're getting at is that the party needs to look like something I would want to be at. Yeah. And exactly. I do not want to be at a single one of these parties, Scott. I'll tell you because that. Because I am not. Yeah. <laughs> the gorgeous Margot Robbie who with like all of this confidence who can just walk in there and jump up on a table and start dancing and all of a sudden have the room in the palm of my hand. This is not right. So many people keep bringing up boogie nights in respect and in, uh, in comparison to this movie, which is blasphemy, but this is not the case of like Eddie Adams, right? The Mark Wahlberg character, like the dumb Midwestern kid who just like gets himself into, you know, this world or whatever, like, Paul Thomas Anderson does it a hundred times better job of making that world look appealing. And a lot of that is because of the character that he chooses to chooses to frame it through. Right. It's a very relatable person. He's just like this normal dude who falls into this, you know, world of glitz and glamour uh, of the adult film industry. Nellie Leroy, we don't even, first of all, we don't even know that much about her. We don't find out anything about her over the course of the movie. She is Margot Robbie, right? Shows up in this yep. gorgeous red dress at the beginning of the movie. And it's like, well, yeah, of course this person is going to be like a, a movie star. Like, there's not really any, you know, suspense about any of that. Um, and it's it's hard to connect with that character at all. And and then as, as far as Manny is concerned, again, the same situation, like we don't learn that much about these people, right? For the fact that this movie is three hours and seven minutes long, we should, we should like, at the end of this movie, we should really feel like we have. We don't know anything that with, happened to them before this, before this movie starts. We don't know. We don't we should, know anything that's happened. To them. We feel like we should have lived with these characters and like know who they are as well as they know themselves at the end of this movie. And that's just not the case and then you know there's brad pitt like i almost don't even think about his entire role in this movie because it just feels so like lackadaisical the entire execution of it his performance like 
It's just rough, Scott. Um, you know, there are individual scenes, particularly early in the movie, that I think, like, if you watch that scene in a vacuum, like, you'll be like, oh, actually, that's really good, right? Uh, there's yeah. a couple of scenes where they're actually making movies, yes. which are, the best scenes you know, I, I, can, I can appreciate that, like, in a vacuum, maybe these things work. But again, when they are positioned in you know, in the middle of this movie that is all just in your face, bluster, excess, blah, blah, blah. And there is some of that in these scenes for sure. Like the effect is just, it, it's very dulled um, as we get deeper into the movie. So yeah, he certain Damien Chazelle certainly swings for it um, with this movie, but it is, it's a pretty big miss in my opinion. Like I, I did not enjoy watching it. It is very unpleasant by design but that doesn't make it good. Um, and mm -hmm. the, the way that it tries to tie everything in, in the, together in the end just really left me scratching my head. Yeah, I mean, to sort of jump to the end without talking about specific spoilers, but just to talk about the themes, because I think ultimately th this film has a lot on it. It has a very clear message that it wants to send you, is that, and I, I was reading a couple reviews to be fair, and David Sims in particular, his very his very short letterbox review, I think yeah. really really summed it up perfectly. It did, yeah. The the two points of this movie are Hollywood, it seems horrible and evil, but also it, it has made some of the best works of art ever. It's like kind of like I think the the thesis of the film is that like this place is horrible, but at the same time, look at what it's made. And I just sort of am like that 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 construction feels so lazily done like the only reason you can really i think extract that piece of information from the movie is with the last two minutes of the film exactly exactly and because so, and even yeah. then and even then like let's just spoil it at this point to spoil sure. it at this point yeah. even then when he goes into the theater right he's watching singing in the rain right which is one of the greatest films of all time like most people would say um Sure. And he starts like crying because he realizes, oh, they this is basically and I don't take it as, oh, he's crying because he like loves this beautiful movie or whatever. I take it as he is like horrified and traumatized in a way that they have made this movie, which is an idealized, watered down version of what he actually saw going on in the movie industry. Right. Because the the plot points in Singing in the Rain, like he sees are very, very closely mirror, like, you know, Lena Lamont's character, for example, like the character of Lena Lamont is struggling with her accent, right? The same thing that, that Nellie is going through it over the course of, of Babylon. And, you know, he sees all of the, the things that he has experienced in the industry, but they are presented in this shiny, shiny, happy, happy, singing in the rain picture. And he starts crying. And again, I don't, I don't see that as like, he was moved which I feel like is now after, you know, after seeing the movie through the end, I feel like that's what he wants you to see. But like, he just portrays every aspect of the industry in such a horrible way. It's just like, how am I supposed to take away any appealing part of this? Like he is, he is really just trying, he, he is really, you know, wagering all his chips on the people watching this movie being like, yeah, I get it. Cause I just love movies so much. And just like kind of forgetting about everything he showed you, like over the course of the first three hours of this thing. Yeah, that's the thing that I really struggled with in the film. If I'm being honest, it's just like it's it is unrelenting 
in its assault, not just on your senses. I think that's like the obvious thing to say, but it's assault on like Hollywood as an institution, as a process for making movies. Like it's just, it just seems really, really dirty. Not It's not wrong to show that side of it. I think there's plenty of movies that have also showed that side of it in the past. I think many movies fail to show that side of it, which arguably maybe should show more. Of the side. I mean, like literally the point is that like seeing the rain is not showing the side of it that, that it should be. Um, I think it's like kind of one of the points at the end, end of the film. And, and the, even even his own La La Land, right, paints a very glamorous picture of old Hollywood. It's almost like if he he is responding to like maybe people who would have criticized that portrayal of old Hollywood by like grossly overcompensating and being like, well, no, don't worry, guys, I get it that there was all this awful stuff going on and racism yeah. and greed and exploitation. Like, let, let me show you. So, like yeah. so much so that like you know that you have like the Giovanna Depo's character right the trumpet player you have Sydney Lee Jun Lee I believe is her name who plays, plays the, Lady Feiju yeah. yeah these things are just totally thrown shoehorned into the movie as like oh yeah there was also racism going on again it's like he is trying to cover all of his bases of like here yes I understand that old Hollywood was awful in all of these specific ways but like these characters have no substance to them whatsoever like again they they are just in the movie very briefly so that he can point out like oh look this you know here was here was this black trumpet player who like he had a moment in a fame but actually you know it was all uh racism but he like, left but he left hollywood and he was happier after he left it I and mean, that's like yes, the last thing yeah. in the movie where you go with him and the same uh, the same thing about you know lee jun lee, lee miss Fay or whatever her name is um she yeah. She leaves, she ends up leaving too. And like when Jack Conrad sees her, like right before he shoots himself, like he is like, she, she seems to be very much like at peace with what, you know, what being what pushed she, out the choices yeah. that she has made. Yeah. Again, I think, I think the point that you're making around like not really feeling like I know any of these characters in the film, I think that's like probably the best. Like, I think that really is like the best critique of the movie. Like, we spend 190 minutes and you don't really feel like you know anyone. In, the, in this film that well, other than what you've seen on screen. And, and it is a really odd sensation. It's not, again, it's not that the film isn't watchable. Like I, I found large parts of the movie very, very watchable, especially in like the first half, middle, middle third of the movie. Like a lot of that super watchable. Like I think the filmmaking stuff you're talking about, like there's large portions of the film that are just about making movies that I think is really great. And then the second half of the film, I just think, I just had no idea what was going on some of the time like especially stuff in the third act like i understand like the 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 higher level level narrative thread that's happening you know unsurprisingly literally could have been predicted from the first scene in the movie well maybe not the first thing because that's just with with manny with just with manny and wrangling the elephant or whatever but like the in the scene that margot robbie and diego calva meet like bro you can call it immediately that margot robbie is going to ruin this guy's life with her like oh, yeah. with her with her addiction and the fact that that it just like sort of completely you know destroys his his career um on the back in the back end of the film and you have the whole side sequence with toby mcguire like what the hell even was that I just, oh my god i just like, don't even like but but again that's kind of one of those things where i could say like in a vacuum like that scene might be okay but also it is like if there's one moment where it's right to invoke the name of boogie nights it's in this scene right because this is his version of doing the alfred molina in yeah. the house scene from boogie nights down to the fact that you have this guy who was like spitting over and over again which is supposed to be like this anxiety inducing 
part of it in the same way that the, the Chinese dude throwing off the firecrackers in Alfred yeah. Molina's house is like it, it is in the same way that like they literally run from, for, run from this location being shot at. Yeah. yeah. I mean, I totally yes. get that. It, that it's like, yeah. it's not, it's not necessarily an homage, but it's definitely, there's some similarities you can draw but he like, from it. Again, that scene, it, that scene at Boogie Nights in its own way is like very contained. It is very like, you know, it makes more sense put in the together suspenseful like it is a perfect yeah. sort of you know one location single location scene but damien chazelle's version of that is we have to go through like this entire haunted house of things that are yeah. going on with the crocodile and people eating you know disgusting stuff people eating rats like and you have toby mcguire acting like a sicko the whole time it's like he just can't yeah tone it down for one scene Toby Maguire is is the literal sicko meme. Yeah. Um in, in this film. It's pretty pretty gnarly stuff. Uh, I just think that the the movie just loses track. Like or, or maybe maybe better put, I lost track of this movie at some point along the way. And I think it's when time starts speeding up in the film, like we're jumping more and more years forward, the plot is, you know, the the higher overarching plot is progressing. It, the film just sort of loses me. I think somewhere somewhere in that and and I think that goes to that goes back to the point that you know you mentioned and then I, I i pointed to as well that i just don't feel like i'm learning and living with these characters at all i just don't feel like i know these characters yeah. i don't feel invested in them like exactly. i want to like brad pitts jack and i'm just like i don't i don't like i just don't care about you i don't feel invested in diego calva who is ostensibly like the, the main character of the movie yeah. like i don't feel um feel invested in his journey at all because like i mean partially because he seems to get where he is because of this whole like how to succeed in business without really trying thing, right? Where other people are giving him the ideas and he's just like, oh, yeah, we should we should do that or whatever. Like we should point the camera at the band yeah. instead. And again, I understand that that is the point. That is like literally the point Giselle is trying to make. Again, all, all this is intentional. Um, but it's it just talking about this business. If you just if you just focus in on Diego Calvo, like. He makes it by taking advantage of the opportunities that he's presented to being present, right that are presented right to him, time. being yeah. in the right place at the right time and then doing the right thing. And this business, when he starts to fulfill his dreams, starts making him do things he really doesn't want to do. And that and that crescendos to this point where he has to tell Sidney Palmer that he needs to put on, you know, black makeup but, to make himself look. But darker. they don't engage with the interesting part of that, which could be that he is himself also a minority now telling another minority like this yeah. is what you have it's to sort do. of sitting like, there yeah it's sitting there yeah for sure. like that there's that's there's a lot there you could explore that hasn't been explored in other stuff but instead no it's just a simple like yeah if you're you know if you make it this far in hollywood you're going to be doing a racism at some point yeah it, it is interesting how there is a point in the movie where he so, someone's like oh i thought you were from mexico or like asked him where he's from and he said i'm from spain which is a lot like we know he's yeah, from mexico yeah. in the movie and there's like again they're like these there's these breadcrumbs that are gonna drop. I mean, look, Scott, maybe all this information got cut out of the four hour ver like the four hour original cut of this film. I mean, re I can only think, release yeah. the Giselle cut so we can watch the 250 minute version of this film and get the full get the full download on this. Um, but I, yeah, I, I it just doesn't it doesn't come together well. I think that's the weird thing, and that's a that is a, that is a really bad critique for a movie that's so long. If it doesn't come together well, that's like not a good sign for a movie this long. Yeah, it, it's it's just bizarre. Again, you know this this final montage of like, hey, aren't aren't movies grand or whatever? It just feels like, like I know. Look again, I understand what David Sims is trying to say. Of like, you know, 
here's the good side of all this. Like even even at it's the end of the earned. day, that's the, the but yeah, that that is not it's, earned. It's, it's not like earned thrown away at the end of the film. at all. And I, I almost respect him for going for it in this way. Like, if there's sure. one aspect of the movie that, like, I actually do respect, it's like, holy crap, like, I did not see that coming. Whereas, you know, the rest of the movie, I kind of do see what's coming. Um, but, like, it is completely unearned, like, for him to... Because, again, at no point yeah. am I sitting there, like, hooting and hollering, like, man, I just love the movies, right, throughout this entire thing. Because he is const- he has to constantly remind you at every single turn that hey you know don't get too excited about this moment because it was you know it was motivated by greed racism exploitation whatever you know fill in the blank sexism like that, that's the thing right? like it's there's so lie. few instances in the film where you get to say wow they did it like there's like three scenes basically there's the last scene which we talked a lot about there's the scene where they where they get the shot at like sunset or whatever um with Jack and this actress that he's in the movies about him falling in love with him and, and whatnot. And then there's the scene where but Nelly, even, but Nelly sees her silent film. Like those are the three scenes where you get to be like, Oh, people are watching this movie or whatever and like getting it. But the problem is, is that in, in, in with all the cases, except for one of those, like, for example, like taking the Jack, the instance with Jack where Diego Calva has run like all the way across fucking LA and back to get this camera. Like, God, it is miserable. And like it is like and, such a miserable Jack, sequence. Jack gets completely undermined with all the movies he's doing, right? Because people don't think he's a bad actor and are literally laughing at him in the theater. So it's like, well, yeah, maybe they get this shot and like it's cool for a second, but then like 20 minutes later, it's like, well, it actually wasn't worth it because people think he's, you know, not good at what he does and he's washed and that's his whole whole journey in the movie is huh, maybe I'm washed, you know, this used to be fun. There used to be, you know, a place for me here. I guess I'm washed now, blow my brains out, you know, and that's that's what yeah. he does. That's his, his arc, two and a half hours of the movie, and that's what we get. I mean, it's a little, I'll, I'll say it's a little more nuanced than that because you have his I like mean, manager or whatever, George, who's going through basically, basically a precursor to what Jack <clears throat> ultimately goes through. But yeah. it's so, like, that evolution is so rushed um the stuff with his wives like the stuff with gene smart like what is she doing in this movie yeah yeah i i think that gene smart is like trying is i think she's sort of i almost feel like she's sort of like an exposition device in the film that really doesn't work for me um i was i was pretty disappointed with that character if i'm being honest and then yeah I, i mean we haven't really talked about the performances at all I think Brad Pitt is phoning it in. My mom walks out of the movie and basically said Brad Pitt was phoning it in. If my mom totally. is calling you out for phoning it in a yeah. movie, bad vibes, guys. Bad vibes. Um, he he is he is doing like a, a you know half asleep version of Cliff Booth. A hundred percent. A hundred percent. Scott Margot Robbie. What what the hell? There's there there's like no nuance to her performance really. It is all just pitched at. You know, and she is like one really octave away note. from Harley Quinn in this movie. I swear to God, yeah, like she's basically yeah, Harley Quinn. Totally. Um, it's I like mean, the scene stuff. is just ridiculous at the house where she's smearing the cake over her face and then she vomits all over. Like, yeah, 
it's the the low you know the low brow that this goes to at some points and and you know Brad Pitt's wife Catherine Waterston is like getting in an Which argument one? with him yeah. about yeah, yeah. Um, like oh movies are are high brow and, and I'm like I agree with her right like I think the movie wants me to agree with him right that movies are like actually art but like after watching the crap that he has shown us for the last two and a half hours i'm like you you barely see any art in the movie i think that's the problem yeah. i mean like obviously there's a ton of art in the filmmaking like i think Hurwitz's score is great like the camera work is very impressive like but the production design shot is, vomit yeah. and elephant diarrhea is still yeah. vomit and elephant diarrhea exactly like that's there's, what there's i take very... away from it at the end of the day <laughs> and i agree that's the thing like you, you don't see like like there again there's maybe like one or two moments in this movie where you see what jack is talking about in those scenes like there's just so few opportunities for there's so many opportunities for just chazelle i think to show you that and so few opportunities taken by him which makes it a really weird juxtaposition at the end of the day but yeah i think margot robbie not good, like diego calva like brother barely showed an emotion in this movie i mean i guess maybe he was like saving it for the last scene or whatever, i don't but like i don't get the the praise for his performance honestly like i just as much as I think the character is underwritten, I also think he just doesn't have any sort of natural charisma to pull it off. I mean, that's the thing. Like the stuff, like it, it comes up in the beginning of the movie, like right before the title card hits, that he's like he tells Margot Robbie or whatever that she that he loves, he loves her or whatever, and like he's clearly doing favors for her and like cares about her in a way that is more than just like oh, this is someone I know and I'm friends with throughout the movie. But like again, like so many aspects of the film, like this this central arc that drives his character in the, in the most critical moments of the movie, like it, it's not borne out very well, in my opinion, like it does, it does not feel well-developed. That, that part of it, I will forgive because who wouldn't fall in love with like, you know, Margot Robbie, when you first see her in this first scene, like in the red dress and everything, I, I'm being funny. Mostly, I know, but, I know. Um, yeah, yeah. But also how about the scene where Nellie goes and visits her, I guess her mother oh at, the God, at the sanatorium, never, never, revisit it again after that it's like a two-minute scene and they just there's no payoff there's nothing more about yeah. that like what happens there man i, I, I saw, when that scene that is happening and they're like getting out of the car and you can see sanitarium in the background i'm like oh god <laughs> like yeah. what are they about to I'm do i'm like here we go <laughs> no it's completely unimportant three minutes of the movie that happens yeah yeah I, I just yeah there's so many i mean look we know that there's a i thought we were longer... about to find like a uh, clea duvall's character <laughs> from uh bones and all and they're just yeah. like <laughs> yeah, yeah yeah she she just jumps at margaret and bites her yeah. hand off or whatever <laughs> um I, I jesus christ i think it's just like yeah i don't know like i know that there's a much there's there's a much much longer version of this movie that exists out there in like a earlier cut i know that that is true but Man, like I just I can't imagine what like who 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 distributed this movie again? Paramount. I cannot imagine what the Paramount executives um thought when they saw the first cut of this movie. Like they must have just been like, we're taking a bath on this one, guys. <laughs> Can we get this thing somewhat close to three hours and just ship it out? Like, good lord. Quick amendment, it was Chloe Seventy and uh in Bones and All, not Cleo Duval. Second of all, yes, I, I totally agree with you. Um I, I I like what Katie Walsh said about the movie, which is uh, the white critic for the, the LA is, Times. Is, is that is, is this that a love letter to the, the movies or a suicide note? I think that's <laughs> a perfect way to sum up this movie. Yeah. And you should just read her review. Honestly, you should read her review for most movies because she's one of the best critics out there. But um, her review in general, I think, is 
is very good. But yeah, I think that's I think it's hers is actually the top uh, review on Letterboxd where she just says that one line, which I think that that pretty much sums up what I feel about this. Like so many people are like, this could be the last movie ever made, like which is obviously extreme. But like you kind of get it after watching this movie. It's like, how do we go on watching movies normally after this when he has spent three hours, you know, basically bearing every aspect of the industry to be a cesspool. Yeah. I don't know. I, I have no, like how does Damien response. Chazelle make another movie after this? Like maybe he doesn't, where does Scott? he go from maybe that's here? It. I don't think he has another movie cooking yet. It's so crazy. Like I, people were talking about this movie for years as being like this insanely great script. Like, like people, you know, you're not going to believe when you see this movie, like how, how good it is. And this is what we got. I just, I can't get over it. Yeah. I don't like, I don't know what to say. All I know is that there, there is like a version of this film that is an hour longer that exists out there. Um, I'm sure there is. I'm maybe sure that version is better. That's like nine hours. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know, Scott. I know. I mean, look, a lot of people that I, that I follow on Letterboxd love this movie. I don't know what they're watching. I'll be honest. Yeah, I, I don't either. Again, I think it's it's like, a, oh, I see the technical mastery that's kind of going on here. And so, but like, I'm that person. It Scott. must be like, a good I, movie. I am that yeah. guy. Like, I am yeah. usually that person with movies. And, and I, yeah, I was, yeah, I mean, like, yeah, I was just exhausted by this film. I didn't, by the time I needed to actually be paying attention to like what was happening in the plot, I was too tired to be following it. Like there is a way to like, I mean, you know, there's there's a great party scene in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood that is at the the Playboy Mansion and you have, you know, Sharon Tate dancing and everything and, and Damian Lewis is there, Steve McQueen, and he's explaining. That's great. It's a great party scene. Like it looks like something that would be fun to go to. Yeah. He just gets it so wrong in this movie. Like there there's nothing seductive or appealing about the party scenes. I mean, the and, whole I, and I think snake, that's intentional. Snake fighting sequence, which we haven't talked about, is like, yeah, that feels like the the poor man version of like, um, Alana going to like ride do the motorcycle jump with uh, with Sean uh, yeah. Penn's character and Licorice sure. Pizza, uh, where they Maybe. all just drive out into the middle of nowhere to like to do did, this. Did you not feel that surge of emotion though at the end of the scene? No. How about Eric Roberts as playing her dad and like? Oh my god. I could not figure out what was going on in that scene. Like I, I kind of thought that she was like, because she, she overhears people making fun of her. Right. And then she decides that like, after that, she's going to go out and like fight the snake or whatever. Cause her dad has, has taught, or she's going to ask her dad to fight the snake because he keeps yeah. telling this story about, Oh, I fought the snake. I thought she was like trying to get her dad killed as her, as her, cause he's her, he's her manager. manager right? yeah. And like when she hears these people making fun of her, she's like, oh, my dad is screwing me over because he's actually really bad at this and I need to get a new agent, but he's my dad. So I have no way out of this situation unless he like dies. So I'm going to just challenge him to drunkenly fight the snake. That's not how I read it at all, but it may. No, I, well, that's not the direction it goes at all, but I yeah. just could not figure out what was going on in that scene. I mean, I think it's just, it's just sort of like the one, one of the chinks in her armor of insecurity, right? It's the whole re I mean, that, that, that whole thread crescendos and, and, the party scene where she just, you know, loses it completely um, yeah. later on in the film. And that's like one of the places that it starts her insecurity around stardom. I mean, that's the whole point. Like everyone's so insecure with their stardom in Hollywood. Again, I think Giselle 
means all of the, all of these things that we're saying are intentional. I don't think it's an accident that that we feel this way about these scenes because I think that is what is intended. I just don't think it balances out well. And again, not every movie has to be enjoyable to watch, but it's not that just just that this film was unenjoyable in large and large over large periods of time to watch. I just found that it wasn't it just frankly wasn't balanced well for the message it was trying to send, I think. And if the if the if we if we have over nuanced the message, like the message is actually just Hollywood is awful, man, what what a miserable three hours and 10 minutes. What is the point of making? Yeah, exactly. Like that that's fine. That's the message. But that's not interesting nuanced or engaging right. like and and know. like you're saying again it doesn't have to be enjoyable but after this last two minutes of the movie it's like it feels like at least parts of the movie are premised it needed on to be them being more. enjoyable yeah. yeah for you to like and so it, it, and so it, it presupposes that you really i mean to be fair yeah, yeah the only people who went and saw babylon are people who really enjoy movies scott because no one went and saw this movie um uh, this past three weekend. three point three and a half million dollars yeah yeah, it's a it's a bomb. Paramount and, knew that they had a bomb on their hands. It's all good. Well, and people are kind of like, what is it about this movie? Like, was it the trailers were bad? Or, people talk about the I marketing campaign. I don't think like, it's anything about this movie specifically. This is just what happens like nowadays. Like it, ha- the same thing happened to the Fablemans, right? The Fablemans made like the exact same amount of money as this movie did. Like, this is just the the world we live in now. Like, there's just not going to be that much interest in seeing these movies in theaters and i hate to say it but like you know yeah if you're if you're a studio exec why are you giving damien giselle 100 million dollars to make a movie like this like i'm like i'm with you i'm glad i'm glad that they did i'm glad that they did but like presumably the only thing that they expected to achieve out of this is like is like awards nominations and it will get awards like it will get awards nominations whatever maybe it'll even win awards i don't know but like you're taking a bloody bath on this thing financially to be fair this was i mean uh, we're still going through like movies that were produced like in pre-covid times and covid Mm -hmm. has changed so much about all this that you know maybe when they give him the check for this movie and whatever year it was 29 yes you could reasonably think that this damien chazelle movie is going to make you know hundreds of millions of dollars right like because 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 these movie you know even in 2019 you know, prestige movies are were doing fine, like doing worlds better than they're doing sure. nowadays. So I, I like, yeah, there are probably a lot of things that Paramount should have done in respect to this movie that they did not do. But in terms of like, again, giving but like what, what could they realistically do? Like, I mean, I guess run a better marketing campaign. If you ask people on Twitter, I yeah. don't have an opinion on that. But like, yeah. I don't know, people are saying like they never heard of this movie. Like I saw the trailer for this movie at every movie that I went to in the last six months. Yeah, I mean that that's yeah. just that's just stupid. Like if you're saying that, it's like you you are deliberately just like what are you watching? Like you're watching like, you ad-free you Netflix. Yeah, like what is like what, what media are you consuming to not see this film? Like yeah. what they're not showing thirty second spots in your like shitty Thursday night football game on Amazon. You don't Prime? watch like, what sports? Are you watching? Yeah, like, yeah, exactly. Like, I don't know. Like I just don't know. I just don't understand that. I don't get it. Some people were talking about like, the TikTok marketing for this thing was like terrible, like terribly marketed toward Gen Z and like whatever, dude. Like if, if you're trying to get Gen, like Gen Z is not going to go watch this movie. I'm sorry, like like it doesn't matter if you market. Like there's no way to market this film well. There's just no way you can market this film well to Gen Z people. Like this is not. But the point, the point is, I think the chief culprit in all this is still COVID. And sure, you know the the actual, you know, we're we're in a time now of like 
we're in this weird middle ground period again of movies like the fable men's like babylon which were ordered before covid like when these movies could still do well and now was the fable men's like, ordered before covid i don't know but um yeah. what story was for sure it but, could have been yeah what's that story was. but yeah. now it's these studios are finding themselves in the predicament of like well we have a turkey on our hand here. It doesn't matter whether the movie's good or not, right? Because the Fablemans was phenomenal, but it did, it, you know, sure. it didn't even matter. Yeah. Um, like people just don't go to the theater. So, so you know, obviously, this is going to lead lead to these movies just not getting made in the future, right? When now that we've we've seen or not being put in theaters at the very least, um, yeah, which is sad. But in the case of of this movie, like. I'm not, I can't say that I'm like terribly sorry to see it flop because I don't think it's very good. It's at least an interesting bad, which I can't say for something like Amsterdam, right? Which is just, it's just nothing. Amsterdam is just nothing. Um, this movie, at least, like there is some intrigue in discussing the whole yeah. epic beast of it and what on earth was he was he trying to do and what on earth was he thinking. I mean, the problem is I think that it's very, it's, it is very clear what he's trying to do, unfortunately. I think that's I think that yeah. is ultimately the problem with it. It's just very clear what he's trying to do. I don't know. He's Everything trying to show some Navi and, uh, and say, hey, isn't I that mean, cool? that was my letter. It was my immediate reaction when I walked out of the film. I texted it to you. It was my letterbox review. I, never in, in a million years did I expect that I would be seeing Avatar when I walked into Babylon. I'll just put it that way. Like, never in a million years did I expect that. Nope. <laughs> um. But hell, man, cinema, it was baby. Something. Ain't it grand? We um, also saw the, uh, you know, uh, OJ and um, yeah, what's what's her what's Kiki Palmer's character's name and Nope. Um, uh, I don't remember. We saw OJ and his sister's, uh, you know, ancestor, the yeah, the man the, on the the, ball, the man on the, the horse, black yeah. jockey on the horse. Yeah, so. and we saw the uh, the Lumiere brothers uh, train entering the station. You know, so yeah, we, we got all that. the classics in here. We surely did. You can't say that it skipped on anything. And all these people on film Twitter saying that, like, there's no cultural impact of Avatar. I mean, it made it into Babylon. I don't know what else you want. Like, there's your cultural impact. Exactly. Eat it. Um, all right, Scott. Any other thing? I mean, we haven't even talked about the end of this movie. Like, everybody dies except for Manny Torres. Um, and it happens so quickly. It's like, yeah. Margot Robbie, like Nellie Leroy, just goes missing. Like she she wander, walks off into the night, and years later she shows up dead, abandoning him, and and that's it. Like, we're, and then you know the next thing that happens is we just see like a newspaper article that she died. But that was like years okay. later. That was like nineteen thirty four, wasn't yeah. it? Like two years later or whatever. It was. Yeah. The movie jumps all around too, which is also kind of a problem uh, in time. M, but M is Kiki Palmer's character's name. And nope. Of course, yeah. I, I, Ashamed, I forgot that I literally just watched it again. But great film, seen it in seventy millimeter in a couple of weeks with Jordan Peele. So that's it is. Cool. That's exciting. Yeah. Um. Anyway, I, I guess if if we're moving into wrap up, I can yeah, say fired up, fired up, I do want to give a shout out to the one performance that I did enjoy, which was um, Olivia Hamilton, who is yeah. Damien Chazelle's wife, um, former McKinsey consultant herself. She is in a couple scenes of this movie as a um, film director. Yeah, Ruth Adler is her name in the, the movie. I wish the whole movie had been about her because I wanted to know, like, who is this person? Like, how did she's a 
she's a female. Well, I was literally about to say this, like, this is this is like uh, totally. There's a whole movie here. What are we talking and about? She's, How's, hey, what? She's great. Like she's you know very sort of quippy and funny, but like you know very like you know she has it together. Like when she's trying to direct this one scene, which is probably the best scene in the movie, where um, they're rehearsing this scene over and over again. Um, oh my God, so and they just they can't get it right, and the sound guys. <laughs> but you know, again, even the scene, which is like I can you know appreciate parts of it. It's like you have the sound guy who's going crazy. You have the assistant director who's just screaming. You have somebody oh God, who's in a yeah. hot box, literally dying. Yeah, he died. And you have all this other crap going on, mm-hmm. like distracting you from the it, it. It feels that is the one moment of like it feels like an Amsterdam like this movie is just so busy with all this screwball stuff that's going on. And it's like, just stop for a second. Just stop. Like the, the, the central conceit of the scene that you have is fine. It's funny. It's good of like rehearsing this over and over again. I just want to watch this. I don't care about this other stuff. And I don't want to see these people just going absolutely nuclear all the time. Yeah. I loved that scene. That was my favorite scene in, in, in the movie as well. You talk you're talking about Max, who is the assistant director played by PJ Byrne. He's Rugrat in The Wolf of Wall Street. Oh my God. Mm. So good in this scene. I think PJ Byrne and Olivia Hamilton are are really, really strong in this. Uh, funniest part of the movie, easily. Yeah. The the guy the camera guy in the booth dot like basically passing out and dying from heat stroke and the sound guy just completely, completely losing it every other take and then you have don wallach or whatever showing up the you know the big shot producer of the film um it's it's sort of one of the it's like the the pot like the the chaotic good scene where i feel like so many other scenes are like chaotic neutral or evil or whatever it is on the alignment on the alignment two by two three by three or whatever um but i i love this scene this was the scene that i was having probably the most fun in the film and i'm like is this what david fincher movies are like making a david fincher movie you're like take ninety one. Um, yeah, I can yeah. only I can only imagine, but it was those scenes were few and far between. But I mean, yeah, whenever Olivia Hamilton was on screen, the, the movie almost was good. Speaking of Olivia, Scott, Olivia Wilde redemption for twenty twenty two. Sure, for forty five seconds or however long she was in this movie. Yeah, that's about right. Um, and Catherine Waterston still making movies. That's I mean, you mentioned her earlier cool that she's in I mean, a movie i'm a fan of hers but yeah she didn't need to be in this all right scott that was our favorite scenes or moments from babylon um put us out of our misery with uh your score out of 10 i've gone back and forth i think i'm gonna give it a four because i do okay. admire some of the technical stuff yeah. in it um God, yeah. he was going crazy with those whip pans yeah. in certain moments of this movie. But, in some of the scenes we were um, just talking about, too. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Uh, the, yeah. The whole, like, studio lot scene of, like, you know, yeah. Diego Calva is running to go get the camera, and then Margot Robbie's trying to shoot her first scene. Um, it's just moving at a billion miles an hour. But, um, you know, there there is a lot of impressive technical stuff and tracking shots and all this this kind of cool stuff going on. But um tracking shots of tracking shots you can't really stop to appreciate it because there's so much other stuff going on but it's just it's a mess of a movie don't waste your time going to see it in theaters it doesn't it doesn't sound like you are anyway if you're listening to this but (laughs) 
Um, you actually might have been the people who did go and see it if you're listening to this, to be fair. There so. is a much better way if you want to go to the theater and kill three hours. There's a much better way you can do it right now. There's a much better way you can do it, and uh, we can guarantee it because AWA provides. That's how we know. Damien Chazelle even tells you there's a better way to go spend your three hours. Even he the bows the to the power of James Cameron. I mean, Terminator 2 is also in that final montage. So yeah, like, it was. He knows. The man respects yeah, Or you can go see The Fablements, right? Because Jurassic Park is also in there. So Sure. Any other he, you want he to is telling you go watch Spielberg or James Cameron instead. He's telling you to go watch these other movies that make if you, you like enjoy movies. movies. If you yeah. enjoy movies, go watch these. If you want to like a never-ending nightmare, then you can watch my movie. Yeah. Um, wow, incredible. 4.8 for me. We didn't we really dwelled on the negatives. There the technical aspects of this film are really strong. It almost goes without saying because that is like that is Chazelle's bag. I feel like ever since Whiplash. I mean, I'd even say like you were talking about like the whip pans and everything else, like the 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 favorite scene that we were talking about earlier with them making, you know, doing the multiple takes like that felt like a whiplash scene, like the the editing and the way that that the sort of frenetic, chaotic um, explosiveness <laughs> of the scene felt like the closest thing to whiplash that we've gotten since whiplash from him. Um, yeah, I, I don't know. I mean, like, look, I'm not a fan of this movie, at, giving it a four point eight. I respect some certain. I respect a lot of technical elements about it. I, I, I don't want this movie to bomb because I want Chazelle to get money to make movies. But I don't know if like he, he's still gonna get money to make films. Like he still made La La Land. He still made Whiplash. He still made First Man. Which you know I, I had my qualms with the film back in 2018 when it came out. But one thing that I had no qualms about is the technical masterpiece of that film. That that film was like all the scenes where. <clears throat> You know they're doing space flight and stuff like that like the claustrophobia of of the technical aspects of that film incredible stuff um so i'm just hoping chazelle can in his next outing continue to show off his mastery of the camera um and other elements of filmmaking but combine it with something that's more compelling in terms of characters and performances so that's one in the l column for damien i think and we can end it there. That will do it for our discussion of Babylon and for episode 217 of Something Like It's Got, our Christmas double feature episode. You're welcome, everyone. Look forward to next year when we have, I don't know what, as our Christmas episode, but we'll figure something out. Scott, any predictions for what we'll be reviewing a year from now? Uh, I don't know. When's that Fincher, when's that new Fincher movie coming out? Is that a possibility? I guess Maybe. it's possible. I thought that was coming out this year, but obviously it didn't come out. Maybe. Right. Maybe Asteroid City. When's that coming out? Yeah. I mean, that's going to go for that's going to that's going to pop off a can, though. So surely they wouldn't save that for Christmas. Oh, true. That's true. Yeah. Killers of the Flower Moon is coming out earlier in the year. Or otherwise, that. Yeah. Be I don't know. Yeah, I don't know. Barbie summer. Yeah. Oppenheimer summer. Mission Impossible. There'll be something. Dead Reckoning summer. It's OK. There will be something. Knock at the Cabin February. Megan January. No, Infinity I'm... Pool. Yeah. <laughs> February. I think. Oh, God um all right jokes over on that one we can end it there where can people find you on social media scott i'm at scarvey dent everywhere including tiktok now hey yo and i can be found at shelton 2013 on twitter letterbox serialized not on tiktok don't forget to also check out our podcast um that we have a patreon page at www.patreon.com slash media plug pods if you can support us over there we'd appreciate it but if not that's okay you can still find us on apple Podcasts, spotify etc wherever you listen to your podcasts where we'd love it if you rate, review, subscribe, share, 
all that stuff. We really appreciate all of you for taking time to listen to us chat about Glass Onion and Babylon. We'll be back next week with a review of the other Netflix auteur-driven film of the year uh, besides Glass Onion. That will be Noah Baumbach's White Noise. That's not fair to say because Enyari 2 also has Bardo, which I guess is also a Netflix auteur Oh, right. That still exists. Driven film. You know, Scott, I had forgotten that film existed, and then I remembered it, and I had to add it to my watch list because I should watch that before before our, uh, we make our top 10 list, Scott. You shrug, Scott, but maybe it'll be in my top five. You never know. Um, sure. But anyway, we'll be back next week with a review of Noah Baumbach's White Noise. We hope you'll join us for that. But until then, for Scott Harvey, I'm Scott Shelton. We'll see you next time.